So our special guest this morning is Anthony Bell, OAM, founder and CEO of Bell Partners, Australia's leading independent diversified advisory consultancy and accountancy firm. Anthony, pleasure having the opportunity to sit down with you this morning. We'll get into the Bell Partners business shortly, but before we do, I want to sort of understand a little bit about your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Sydney and your mother surely had a significant impact on you. Tell us a little bit about her impact and, and your upbringing, if you could. Yeah, can't put enough emphasis on that, Rob, and thanks for having me. The um, mum who uh, only passed away a couple of months ago, and uh, you know, I'm a real mummy's boy, and uh, it still, still resonates very heavily on it, particularly a lot of those lessons that we got when we were younger. Um, I'd say the, the big part of that was that while mum wasn't university trained, she sort of grabbed my sister and I at young ages. Um, I, I sort of look back now and go, I wonder if she was coaching us to both be in business. And my sister's actually the, the smart one in the family, having been on the board of Deutsche Bank and, um, and now has returned you know, I mean, successfully to Australia as well. But your mum would grab us with these really simple, easy anecdotes. Um, uh, things like save where you can so you can spend where you need to. Um, well, there's no such thing as someone who walks over someone. There's only such a thing as someone who lets them. Um, so those sorts of things were drilled into us from when we were literally kids. Uh, and then the translations um, that, that mum would you know, put into it, and, and she was a real relationships person. Um, trying to imagine even a funeral, you know, in that packed out place, she died at 91 years old, uh, and it was like standing room only in the church and outside it, um, because she infected people with herself, um, to, you know, a very kind soul, but you know, a strong person as well. And so I guess you know, those early training uh, measures and, um, and items like that, yeah, and, and all the way through. Um, uh, so even losing mum at the funeral, I, remember commenting, it's, it's like losing your partner. It's like losing the person you talk to everyone uh, about. And uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of the ways we do things at Bell Partners was certainly from that homegrown teachings and, and tough uh, love as well when it was needed. <laughs> now, as I understand it, you had a, a modest upbringing attending Waverley College in Sydney's East. As I understand it, you were uh, focused more on your sort of sporting prowess skills rather than, than the academic, uh, <laughs> than your academic performance. What was it about sport that you that you loved and obviously carried through over your life? It's funny actually. Waverley uh, was, a, was a proud rugby school and still is. And um, yeah, so I, I thought the sole reason guys went to Waverley was to make it to the Australian schoolboys <laughs> rugby team, and there was a bit of education. On the side, I think the, the, the highest uh, academia I studied was four-unit rugby at school. But uh, yeah, look, it was a great school. Um, um, the, and then the learnings on that one coming through, you, you'd sit at roll call and the son of a high court judge on your left and the son of a garbage collector on your right. So it gave you a real a good dexterity. Again, these things set you up for later on and lessons have been clearly paved out and learnt uh, you know, at, a, at a really young age. Um, but you know, the, the sportsman stuff you know, was really important. Um, the you know Waverley produced many wallabies and it produced many you know leaders in you know sort of business and, and society and and so the listening to the alumni and and, and the parts there about what a contest was, um, sportsmanship, what graciousness was, um, what being humble and and humane was around it, and strangely enough, then you know passing in through um, all, all the years through and then following the rugby union stuff into Randwick and I think you know sort of the lessons get learnt there. There's a lot of Randwick rugby union. Galloping Greens, who are uh, probably uh, they haven't won a comp for a couple of years now, but if you go back to those days, they won everything. And uh, Campisi, Kearns, Poitivan, all those guys gave great lessons to us. They became early clients and uh, and helped. You know, some of the learnings of those sporting foundations definitely related into our business here. 
So you finish high school and then you enrol at Charles Sturt University in a accounting and, and commerce degree. What prompted that decision? Obviously your father was was an accountant, was that part of it? Yeah, well it was a good story that one. And so uh, I did the HSC twice, I did year 13 and uh, I, I finished year 12, put in for you know, medicine, uh, commerce, law, everything got into nothing. And then I think that was when mum said, look, you better go in and see your father. <laughs> um, Dad um, yeah, uh, was um, a chartered accountant. Um, mum and dad split when I was about two. Um, wise man, went and saw him. Uh, basically said, look, I've got nothing to do and I'm, I think I want to be an accountant. Dad said, look, it's just because it's the only place that's going to give you a job here, but it's not good enough for me. And he was hard too. And he said, um, look, you're going to have to matriculate. If you're going to be here, you're no good to me unless you actually get a commerce degree and then become a chartered accountant. Now, you're not going to be able to do that unless you go back to school and do it again and, and study, put your head down and get into one of the about 20 unis um, in Australia accepted by the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Uh, as it turned out, um, I didn't get into uh, Sydney Uni or U University of New South Wales. I still remember um, uh, getting the, from the mailman back then, this before you know, it was sent out by email and or IT, and uh, mum and I were standing at the postie uh, the second time around, and I remember the celebration with my mum, I've got into Charles Sturt University at Wagga, and she, she, I go, it's awesome we've got into one. I go, right, where's Wagga? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and again, the start of a great journey, you know, that. That trip down um, to, to there was a really defining period for me. Um, it was time to buckle down, take the learnings, but also to, you know, the, we're suddenly at a country university. There were, there were students around there whose parents were third or fourth generation farmers who had to let their sons or their daughters uh, release to uni to do a commerce degree. And that's letting a second set of hands or a third set of hands away from the family business. So those guys knuckled down, they actually studied hard. Um, they, they, they played hard. Um, um, but they also too learned hard and that environment was really good for me um, to actually you know, start to knuckle down myself. Got into the country rugby scene down there of course as well so it wasn't all study and, um, and some of those mates uh, from down at Wagga we're, we're still a great group of friends today. We catch up regularly, we, we talk to each other uh, and that is a, you know, was an experience that I'll never forget before transferring back up to, uh, to Sydney. And as I said, you, during that period you met Charles Britton I think who had a significant impact on you. Tell us about the impact he had on you and, and why that period was so defining for you. Yeah, it's a good bit of, bit of research there for you, Rob. It's Chris Britton. He, um, he uh, was the first, he was working for Dad. Um, so to, to take the job in Charles Sturt, as I said, we, we didn't come from a you know, wealthy background. So I had to, uh, the agreement I had with my father was that I would sandwich the course. I'd, I'd go down to university and I'd form a cadetship with his firm, uh, Dad's firm. He has about six or five or six staff. Um, and I'd have to work in my university holidays um, in order to earn enough money to pay dorm fees, etc. And uh, I remember when I first started, Dad introduced me to Chris and uh, he said, look, um, it was day one, uh, Dad said pretty much, um, uh, look, stay out of my way, that's the first thing. Um, no one wants the boss's son in here, um, so you're going to have to do it better and cleaner than everybody else. Um, and he said, here's Chris, he said, uh, do what he says and, 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 say, and learn to say what he says and, and you just... Uh, he'll look after you and he'll teach you and train you. So it was sort of like a dad did remove himself a fair bit, you know, sort of from us and, and actually made it really hard on me, you know, so in terms of, um, you know, where I sat in the office was at the lowest end of the whole place. Dad always said, you know, you must be in well before the other staff arrive and you must leave after they do because, again, the same thing, no one wants the boss's son in here. 
um, you know, some, some preppy kid who they um, think to him has got some sort of sense of entitlement. Uh, and then that's where my first real education in accounting started with Chris. Um, funnily enough, he still works for us today, would you believe, wow. all those years later. Um, he's um, come back on as a consultant. He's working with our technical and quality team, but uh, an amazing teacher. And fast forward a few years, I think, to the year 1995, you're the largest fee writer or, or revenue generating <coughs> individual within Donald F. Bell & Co., your father's accountancy practice. What, what, how did you get to that level of success at such a young age? What were the, the skills or secrets? Yeah, it's great. There's the, I think I wasn't trying to was the first thing. I didn't have a goal to be the largest writer. Mm. Uh, for me, the natural thing came into the service industry and understanding what that meant. Um, obviously, a lot of other accountants, people who came and worked for us, who worked other firms. There was a, there was a sense there that you know, um, there was a bit of a forgetfulness of that who the customer is and, and, and who the provider is. Um, so we were really clear on the fact that you know, we were in the service industry and that you know, our, our whole future depended on how we serviced our clients. Um, um, Dad, you know, wasn't, it was a, not a bad firm, he was a good accountant, um, but Dad sort of went off into other things like a lot of accountants do. He invested in restaurants and bars and, um, and, and all sorts of things like that. But effectively, the, the, the mentality I had there was relationship focused, I've got to say, Rob. It was, you know, I was, I was down at Randwick, it didn't come long before, you know, I was playing with a group of guys, and it suddenly started with guys at training saying, oh, mate, you're an accountant, aren't you? I need my tax return done. And then that was, to me, was an opportunity um, to, you know, sort of service someone, do more than we got paid for, um, provide something that was different to the current service level. And my nature of thinking was if I do a really good job and I go a little bit beyond, uh, that same person, whoever it is, big or small, will feel when somebody comes to them uh, later and says, do you have a good accountant, they'll refer me because they'll say, yeah, Anthony, you know, sort of did it beyond um, an expectation experience for us. So, you know, little things we do. I'd, if someone got a tax refund, I wouldn't put it in the mail. I'd actually drive it to their house and hand it to them. If it was um, meetings that they needed to have and they were working, do you know what I mean, sort of an environment where they couldn't get into the office, I'd go and see them after hours, Saturdays, Sundays, whatever. Um, I then proffer a little bit of financial planning and how to create a little bit of wealth. So, you know, most accountants, Rob, record history really well, but they don't make history well. So at a really young age, I started to try and learn. I educated myself on everything about wealth creation and, and tried to inject that into, you know, what was the standard client relationship. So was it a tax return or was it a tax return and a let's help guide your financial future? I was doing that in the 90s and I guess that was probably a big part of how we ended up, do you know what I mean, sort of with a large private client base um, surrounding with me. And take us through the year 2000 when you went out on your own and launched your own business being Bell Partners. Uh, reflecting on, on this period, you, you uh, previously said that it was the worst deal you've ever done owing to the fact that half the revenue being generated by your father's business, which you bought out, was through your yeah. contacts. Take yeah. us inside the merger of the two businesses and, and then how you wanted to go about doing things differently. Yeah, so it's a little known fact, Rob. So it actually, uh, Dad offered me a junior partnership back in 1996. As I said, I was playing footy down at Randwick, enjoying it. I hadn't really thought about my future that much then. Um, and I remember Dad saying, okay, I want to you know, talk about the, you know, your future and I, I want to you know, you to become a junior partner here. Um, I think it was a stability means for Dad. I was on a lower salary in the firm at the time. And um, I sort of said to Dad, how's that work? And Dad said, well, I'll be the senior partner, you'll be the junior partner. Then one day I'll either die or retire, then you'll become the senior partner and your kids will become a junior partner. And that's how it all works. And I remember 
thinking, okay, cool, I'm not sure if I'm really up for that. I've got some ideas for how to, you know, sort of engage in, in running a business and an accounting firm. But, um, and I also thought Dad and I were two strong bulls in a paddock, so I thought there was a good chance we'd clash. So uh, I went to Dad in, um, in 1997 and said, Dad, look, I made a decision. I'm actually not going to accept the junior partnership. I'm going to break away and start my own firm. Uh, so in October 97, I actually incorporated Bell Partners, and that was a big family feud. You know, Dad was, Dad was, you know, I guess disappointed. Um, he was upset. Um, he thought it'd make him look like, um, you know, sort of in, in to all his friends and that that I didn't want to stay on working for him and I wanted to go my own path. And I can't, I actually understand that. Um, so I broke away. Dad said it was also a stupid decision. He said, you've got no, um, he said, you're too young. You look ridiculously young. Um, he said, you haven't got the experience um, and you've got no finance or banking and you'll go broke. And that's also going to be embarrassing for me uh, when that happens. And that was a bit of a fuel in my fire, actually, when Dad, you know, sort of, he might have been able to coax me back in, but when he told me I couldn't do it, it was like a real, um, it was a real plus sign for me to say, okay, let's get out there and have a crack. And it was hard, you know, I moved back home with mum, um, all the things Dad said were true. Uh, Dad and I didn't speak, um, and uh, he was, like I said, the disappointment and the rift was, was quite high. And we got to that period you mentioned in October 2000, and uh, you know, I was struggling, um, just hanging in there. And when I say just, I mean just. My PA, uh, Jacqueline, who um, uh, is still with us today, uh, back then, she, we were just holding it together, week to week cash flow, paying wages, paying landlords. It was, it was really hard. Um, as I said, I had to move home with mum to, uh, to help cover costs and I could still remember um, dad, I can remember the phone call, dad rang mum's house, um, he still remembered the number. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, he said, look, this is ridiculous, you know, you and I, you know, sort of, a, you know, we're not talking and we're at war with each other over clients or over whatever. Um, he said, I've, I've worked this all out, um, come for a meeting with me, um, come and have lunch and I'm going to tell you, you know, sort of what my solution is. So I thought, I've got nothing to lose. I went and had lunch with Dad up at the A&A Hotel. Um, and Dad said, okay, um, <clears throat> fundamentally, you want to work for yourself. I'm shocked that you've actually survived this long. Um, he said, what you're going to do is you're going to buy me out of my firm of Don Leff Bell & Co and I'm going to come work for you as a consultant. That was at that point I suddenly learned what a consultant really does. It comes and goes when it wants and it has no responsibilities whatsoever. But I'll tell you what it did do, it gave us a bit of grey hair. So it actually put Dad and I together and Dad, Dad was a very good auditor um, at the time and he'd had, had, had a lot of public you know, sort of positions over his 40 year career. Um, and I got to model the firm that I wanted to in the future. And I also brought, you know, sort of my family, my own father, and I worked back together. And we worked harmoniously up until when Dad died in uh, 2016. So we had 16 great years up the end. And he was pretty much still around, you know, right to the very end. Um, his health started to take a bit of a wayward, but I can still remember Dad coming on conferences in 2015. Um, we used, Dad wanted to speak at the conference, our, our staff ones. I said, oh, God, what is he going to speak about? <laughs> Hopefully nothing technical. <laughs> um, we used to say, you know, we used to say uh, uh, Don Bell's going to come and talk about war stories, and he'd talk about tax office audits that he had in the '60s <laughs> or the '70s, bottom of the harvest schemes and things like that. They were actually some of the most interesting conference topics out of the whole lot. The ones the staff said, "I can't wait to hear the Don talk about his war stories," and it was uh, no filter, and it was mate the '80s and stuff like that were all covered. And um, yeah, you know, I guess that's learning, still. I mean, sort of, you know, I, I thought they were valuable. I was young and, and I suppose had to be aware that I didn't know it all then. And um, yeah, to have dad hanging in as a consultant and being part of it, you know, it was actually, I, I think, you know what I mean, sort of a great part of our foundation for the future as well. 
You spoke about modelling or remodelling the firm in your own direction. As I understand it, during that period in those early 2000s, and, and you may well still still follow this approach today, but you've got a corporate leadership model wherein one leader drives the strategy and execution of the group rather than having multiple stakeholders involved in the process. What are the benefits of that model and, and how's it worked out? So a couple of things um, on that model. I remember the, the traditional partnership model, which still exists out there um, and still around. I, I remember 96, we picked up a few clients from the floor above us because a three partner firm actually fell apart, uh, got into a partnership dispute. They were quite successful. They were a lot larger than us. and. You know, when the partnerships fall apart, there's usually a race for clients. You know, each partner's contacting clients to say, who's going to come with me to my new firm or I'm setting up for myself. And I remember that was 96 and a, a lot of uh, you know, guys just read, you know, that were accountants you know, on the floor below and they literally turned up and said, look, we'll take over the work. We're with this firm upstairs, but we can't decide between the partners and they're at war with each other. And I remember that was the first part I thought, okay, cool. The, the partnership model it's a great model for growth and it's a great model um, for diversity and width. Um, but if it falls into dispute, if there's not a natural leader to it in a three-way partnership, what happens when no one can make a decision in the place? Um, what happens when there'll always be one partner who's more entrepreneurial than the other? What, what happens when they're, you know, um, you know, they get into disputes over everything from drawings to, to logos to the way they do their work? So it was probably off the back of that, I thought a corporate model in the accounting uh, world would be a good one. Um, uh, following where there was a CEO, um, that the, the senior staff were developed, um, they weren't made partners, they weren't equity holders, which also meant they didn't have to bear the risk. Um, but my point was, how do I get someone to come to work every day, still feel that they're a part of the, the, the fabric of the brand, not bear any risk, but still be remunerated um, highly um, and a results dependency sort of thing. So we developed a model which almost uh, was a U-Ink model. Um, my, my great mate and, and client, John McGrath, wrote a book called U-Ink and um, it talked about everyone as their own CEO. And um, so off the back of some of the learnings I got from John, I thought, okay, let's, let's do a model here for that where, where guys can fundamentally you know, be their own leader. Um, they'll have targets and results here. Where they, where they go beyond their targets, they'll be remunerated highly for that. Um, they'll pick their own staff, they'll manage their own staff, they'll, with, you know, in coordination with me, uh, we'll provide the training, the learning, but these guys will run business units within the business, so wheels within the wheels um, um, to build a practice out. And uh, funnily enough, that's still the model uh, that we have today. So it was one of the ones that actually did work. I could start talking about the ones that didn't, <laughs> but that was actually one of the ones that did. I want to ask you about... And the other thing too, Rob, I should add, it let young people have a crack. You know, and it was one of the things that was frustrating, you know, that traditional model, you know, you come in, you might make junior manager, then you might make senior manager, then you might be a salary partner, then you might eventually make partner by the time you're 38 years old. You never spoke to clients, you, you were sort of succumbed. The seniors in the firm never let the, the client relationships fall to someone younger because the risk they might leave and take their clients with them. Mm. Um, so my model actually worked to say, great, you know, you can be a 26 or 27 year old, well-trained, well-skilled. If you, if you are good enough, you're old enough, and they could get into that realm a lot quicker um, than what it might be through the traditional pathways. And has that been a real attraction point for Bell Partners and if you've got, whether they're graduate accountants or <coughs> semi-experienced accountants, yeah. instead of going to one of the corporate big four, they're happy to yeah. come to Bell Partners? And so, you know, we've developed, which is not great for um, headhunting or recruitment, but we've developed a pretty good name for our early two-year training. Our first two years of training when we grab a graduate um, is really heavy. It's a lot of deep water management. We get them into real business scenarios. We, we teach them a lot more about how businesses work and how to consult and improve and, and um, how to advise on it in that first two years. We, we make guys, in my opinion, into great accountants. 
Um, we generally recruit straight out of university and we get them our way. So we love people who haven't had another job before. Um, but we do love people who've had another job at Macca's or something like that on the way through. So uh, to get them into this and get them into our system, that's probably it. So we, we really go hard on that first two years with every graduate. And, you know, like I said, again, touch wood, it's worked for us. So if I look at our senior leadership team, um, I think about 90% of the senior leadership started as 23-year-old graduates. 15 years later, they're actually at the senior part of the firm. They're not equity holders, but they I mean, act and treat the firm as though it's their own. And um, um, they've come through a system, I guess, you know what I mean, in, in, in really good learning. Um, that's not to say that there's not other firms that have great learning matters, but this is the one that's worked for us. So, yeah, our attraction you know, to young staff has always been two factors. There'd be that you know, young and you're going to get opportunity and, and shots at it. I suppose that the client base we have is a, you know, a great illuminated and galvanised client base. We've got some of the most famous people in Australian business with us. We've got some of the most famous Australian sportsmen with us. Uh, we've got people in the entertainment industry. And I guess when you're working, you know what I mean, sort of in a larger organisation, that provides a little bit of flair for them. You know, they like seeing that. They like seeing the current Australian cricket captain walk in for a meeting or, or, or they like seeing you know, one of the best broadcasters in the history of the world walk into the office for a meeting. And it reminds them they're working on the best in the business and they're learning to do better as well. And they get exposure to those types of people instead of the being sort of... That's exactly know, right, yeah. yeah. All caught in the way and, yep. and no chance. So that's probably one of our attracting talents, yeah. I want to ask you about the growth of the business from the early 2000s right up to today. In particular, there's been the establishment of new business divisions, Bell Partners Legal in 2012 and then Bell Partners Finance and Insurance in 2014. What, what prompted the decision to move into yeah. other adjacencies? So the first time we did actually, it's now, it's now so popular in the accountancy profession to say, if you're an accountant, you must have a wealth division. So we opened our first wealth division in 2002, would you believe? It's going back before. And I remember there was a lot of criticism around that, that you know, uh, wealth, stockbroking, advisory, doesn't, and accounting don't go together. So the prompting came from really clients coming to us and saying, look, you know, we've had a good year of profits, we've, we've got some residual income, we've paid the mortgage off on our house. Um, what, do we, what do we do with our money? Um, and so while we were good advisors, do you know what I mean? And, and that property has always been a key heel space of ours. It's always treated us really well. And our exposure to the property industry is, has been well taught to us by, you know, everyone from developers to real estate agents. Um, I sensed that there was going to be more needed. You know, people were saying, oh, I want to invest in the stock market. Um, and so we then started Bell Partners Wealth in 2002 to take our client as a trusted advisor, steer them into a group of highly trained and usually expertise from other areas and, and actually say, great, we'll manage your money for you as well. Now, it's a total biological fit. Um, it makes proper sense in the DNA between your accounting, tax and advisory, and to also the two hands be talking to each other on, on wealth management. Um, and it was great for us. That was a really big stick, you know, big driver of wealth. So people were going, great, they look after my money as well. You know, it wasn't long after that um, you know, clients would bring us on the phone and say, I've just bought a house on Saturday, find me a mortgage. Um, who, what bank do I go to? Who do I call? And rather than get on telephones, did. So that was the catalyst for us to go, well, rather than um, you know, refer it to a bank or refer it um, to a you know, sort of a non-banking lender, um, let's refer it to someone that's sitting in our office here who can actually monetize that. Uh, get paid by the bank, uh, so do a free service um, and do a better service. And a bit like Aussie uh, Home Loans or Wizard at the time, 
where you started Bell Partners Finance, um, had the total exposure to every bank and we were able to just pick for our clients. And again, our clients were totally wrapped in that because it was something less that they had to do. They never had to pay for it. Uh, and likewise then, it, you know, and, 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 a, and a great outcome uh, came from that. And obviously, you know, most clients have insurance things. They say to us, who's the best insurer? So we started our own insurance branch. Most clients have a legal issue every now and then, so we started Bell Partners Legal. So what we wanted to do was try and get an A to Z or an end to end, if you like, uh, philosophy that anything that a client needed that had anything to do with money, accountancy or advisory, we could actually do under one roof rather than have to refer it up the street. Um, so the two things that we, we got out of that was we got price efficiency. So it was, it was you know, really efficient for the client to just have a brief done by me straight into Bell Partners Legal than it would if I had to go and brief um, you know, sort of one of the larger law firms, discovery observation takes place and then the, the, the power of managing the process. But the second thing is to put more time in our clients' hands and the new currency, the new black, if you like, is clients want time back. So for us being able to manage the entire process um, meant that they didn't have to get too involved in They could get back to their job or their work and actually become dollar productive while we were taking care of the background. And the business has clearly grown across different business divisions, but it's also grown geographically as well. Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Tamworth, Newcastle, to name a few. Take us through the, was that always sort of part of the plan that you wanted to have offices across the eastern seaboard and across the country, or did that happen just by client demand? There was, there was a bit of luck in it too, mate. Um, so I can still remember one of our great, um, he was a great manager working for us, a guy called Darren Morris. He came to us uh, in about 2005 or 2006 and uh, he actually handed his resignation. And Darren had been with us for three or four years, great operator, very good at taxi. He was a Queenslander, I always knew he and his wife had moved down to Sydney for the work opportunities that exist in Sydney. Uh, and he let me know his wife at the time was working at GE Capital and she'd uh, been offered a, a massive um, uh, pay increase and a, and a new um, superior role to what she had in Sydney to go back to Brisbane. So he said, well, mate, I'm gonna follow, follow the missus up there. Um, and. I remember saying, let me think about this for a, for a day. And I remember it, came, it just came to me the next morning. I think I was on a run and I just said, you know, Daz, I've always been thinking about opening a Queensland office. And um, I said, why don't we do it together? Uh, why don't we go and open up, you know, in sort of in Brisbane and, and, and get that set? And um, David immediately said, oh, what, so I could, you know, sort of join up with the brand and run my own show and be a managing director. I said, yeah, that's exactly what it'll look like. So it actually came as a retention device to keep what was a very good operator in our business. Um, and that, that was our first branch office was in, um, in, in that period. And it actually worked for us, it worked really well. Daz is still with us today, still the MD of Queensland and, and does a magnificent job. Um, but it also showed me that, you know, as business changed, people wanted, they, they, they have requirements, um, you know, sort of in the outer Sydney. Um, so we opened up a second outer Sydney in Norwest. Um, Newcastle was getting requests. So do we put our guys on the road driving up to Newcastle or do we open up an office in Newcastle as well? Uh, Melbourne was the you know sort of the, the cornerstone, and um, and then to you know sort of be a national firm, we had to be down in Melbourne again as well. Um, and then you know sort of even during COVID, again the opportunities come to me. They speak. It was sometimes they're not strategic, but the opportunities knock on the door, and it makes sense. And um, you know a couple of our really long termers moved back to the country during COVID for the lock lockdowns and they sensed opportunity. So, and one of them who was you know, a great mate and he's worked for us for about 20 years, he goes 20 years this year, said, look, I reckon we should open up in Tamworth. And at the time I was no intention of opening up in Tamworth. Um, and I was sort of going, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, 
Tamworth. Uh, <laughs> what's the odd one out? <laughs> now, the funniest thing, it's our fastest growing office. Um, we've only been open there for about 18 months and on run rate, it's grown actually faster than even Bell Partners had in its wow. first Sydney presence as well. You know, An explicit service by highly trained professionals that are hitting a market that um, you know, I mean, sort of is used to you know, good services up there, but we, um, we came and provided something new and something from our learnings and it's taken off over there. So it's up to about 25 staff right now and killing it. One of the other things that I found interesting in researching the success of Bell Partners was that you once mentioned that I'm completely opposed to, to getting big. I always want to be a boutique firm. It's not about being the biggest, it's about being the best. Yeah. Take us through why, why you sort of follow that mantra. Yeah, I think when I was really young and I was starting to, to you know, attract clients to our firm, um, we, were met, we got up to that middle tier firm and even to some of the top tier firms, the big four firms, and the big questions that came from us when people were deciding to leave there to come to us was that they didn't want to be a number in the place. You know, Again, that customer orientation that I spoke about before was, was really important. So um, not being a number in the place meant not being too big. It was synonymous with too large, and that's why they were leaving other firms and coming to us. So our model had to equal the personal service and size is a natural um, detractor from personal service. Um, so um, in our structure, I says, said, what we want to do is be able to compete with the big four firms. We want to be able to go service for service and pound for pound and advisory and tax and, and everything that you can get up there, you can get down here. We just don't want to do it with 6,000 people. We want to do it, you know what I mean, so we're more highly trained set. The other part that um, you know, was always was a winner for us was um, when clients appointed us out of other firms that were larger than us, they talked often about not dealing with the seniors. They talked about dealing with too many juniors because they weren't large enough to get partner attention or senior manager attention. That was a perfect fit for us because what was too small a client in, in the bigger fabric was a perfect fit for us. I mean, and you could get my attention on it. You could get the seniors' attention on it. You could get the best in our business on it. And so suddenly we, um, to the client, not only did they get a more comparable fee rate, they also got a higher degree of dedication and a higher degree of experience in the service. So that was what was driving it. Let's not get too big here, guys, because it's actually been such a good thing for us to be boutique. And so we, and I'd still say today we're, we're still pretty boutique. Our lines, like I said, in Tamworth or whatever, or, or Brisbane or Melbourne or Newcastle, um, are still the same lines of service you know, and speed to getting back to people, speed to finding expertise as what they were when we just had a Sydney office. And is there an ideal, say, client that you work with or you work with businesses of all size, individuals of all wealth levels? Yeah, it's interesting, Rob. We're, we are general practitioners, so we do everything. Uh, we do everything from the electrician to the surgeon to the real estate agent uh, to, the, to the plumber um, uh, to the manufacturer to the international brokerage houses. Um, but what I would say is that our, our target client is family business. Um, there's probably, if you're going to, we do quite a few public companies um, and engage by them, and they're great for our teachings and learnings. But the place that we're at our best is private, family-owned, or, or partnership, or, or, or historical foundation businesses. That's where we're able to get into, get our teeth into it, the, you know, right through the succession planning, um, right to the efficiencies, to the business growth for them, to their profit improvement, to their investment improvement. We're sort of good at that sort of area where it's, you know, a controlled private enterprise. Um, and it gives us a chance to move um, quite fast and also get to the seniors and the decision makers in the business a lot quicker. So, yeah, our, our, our favourite client, you know, when I say our favourite client, there's some of them employ about 1,500 people, so they're not small, uh, they're, they're private family businesses, uh, and that's probably the ones we like the most. 
Now, I know that you no doubt speak about business day in, day out, so I want to ask you about a few of your, your other pursuits. In particular, as a lot of people would be aware, you're a passionate yachtsman in both the leisure and racing capacity. Take me through where, the, where that passion to, to be out on the water first originated from. So I started as a kid. Uh, mum, mum um, uh, at a young age, um, dad, uh, dad and mum had split when I, you know, I was about two. My uncle Ken had a ski boat. So by the time I was five years old, I was water skiing. I, was one, I think I was barefooting by the time I was seven or eight. So I was mad, I was crazy for, for, for the water. Um, uh, but also to growing up surfing and anything to do with that. It had a, had a real uh, resonance with me. Mum loved it, my sister loved it, so I loved it. Um, we, all, we all sort of had a thing where, um, you know, sort of it's a, it was around us all the time. Um, and then um, pushing on to that, yeah, we. Obviously, the, the sailing thing was quite interesting because mum wanted me to learn a lot about sailing. And I remember when I was about 11 or 12 years old, she, you know, once mum said it, that was the end of it. And she said, look, I want you to um, learn a bit about sailing. I was not interested. Um, loved the boats, the power boats, the water skiing, but the sailing thing just wasn't my bag. And she got me into a, a season down at um, Vaucluse Sailing Club um, on Flying 11s, which are arguably uh, great teaching devices, but one of the slowest boats that you could ever get on. Um, and they just went fast enough for me. And so my interest was, was sort of not there because they were, they, they um, you know, great tactical, great learning for kids, uh, but it's skiff sailing and it, and it was by no means madly exciting. Um, I, you know, spend four hours out there, you know, come halfway through the race of 100 boats and just get mad sunburning. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what it meant to me. Um, so, and then, um, then windsurfing came out when I was about 15 or 16 years old, it came big and then so mum didn't want to give up. Um, you know, sort of got me into that, got me to learn that. I ended up getting a job as a windsurfing teacher and I liked that. It was fast, it was efficient, it was quick. Um, it had some sort of flair about it, um, which was attractive, do you know what I mean, to, to young guys. Um, and then so I got quite good at that. I only really gave up the, the, you know, the windsurfing and sailing because rugby started to take over a fair bit, the training schedules and things like that. It was still a great summer sport, but I, I sort of didn't. I did a bit of competition level with it, but it was going to be a, one way or another. So I stuck with my rugby um, on that set. Then when we all retired from rugby, you know, we had some you know, great clients, you know, former Wallabies. I can remember sitting down with, with one, uh, which was Phil War, and um, a former captain of the Wallabies, about 80 odd tests. Um, and I remember Warry saying to me, you know, we, we should we should come up with something and do something different for charity as well. He was talking about auctioning off wallaby jerseys and you know in a frame and them getting three hundred bucks rather than ten thousand that they used to get, you know, years gone by. And um, we as a firm wanted to do something with charity. I mean we employ um, nationally we, we put in the special needs guys um, all over the place. We like to give jobs to people you know, I mean, who need to leg up. But this was more and um, and we sort of said let's let's start to, you know, um, do fundraising um, as a firm, but let's have a, a reason for doing it. Let's you know, let's have a, a goal and a target point for what we're going to do. Uh, but let's also to bring something different into the fundraising, not just auction off a wallaby jersey or a, or a you know a, a famous horse racing whip of a horse that won the Melbourne Cup. Let's go and grab a group of guys. And, and I remember writing the concept for Loyal. I said, uh, we'll go and race in a Cinder Hobart. We'll put ourselves all at risk, danger. Um, We'll draw attention to our cause by the fact that we're amateurs sailing against professionals. Um, and we built the plan for Loyal. Now, when I was writing it, I, I probably, again, um, you know, stars in my eyes. And I, I remember, um, you know, thinking, OK, we're going to win the race. Now, I worked out what it'd take to win the race. And if you look at the start of Cinder Hobart, Rob, most people, I know there's, you know, great, there's 120, 130 boats from all sizes. Foots to a hundreds, but the ones that really draw people's attention is the maxis. Um, they're big sails, big crews. They go fast. 
Um, they're, they're big pieces of kit, they've got high risk. Um, so I said, okay, if we're gonna win this, um, we need to be on a maxi boat. I need to go out and find a maxi boat somewhere. Um, and we launched. Um, we rented a boat that was over in New Zealand, had been sitting on stilts uh, for a couple of years. Um, got a crew together of half professional, but also to half amateurs. We attracted sponsorship to help pay the cost of sailing. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned early in maxi boat sailing is the wind is free, but nothing else is. It's <laughs> like <laughs> uh, so ripping up $100 bills every time you just think about it. Um, <laughs> But we attracted sponsorship to the cause. Uh, Investec jumped on board, they liked it. They liked the fact that we were raising money for charity. So our sole goal off the back of it was to try and make a million bucks for charity, I mean, off the back of every year. Uh, so first year in 2009, we raced, um, we, we came fourth. There was a stage there where we were going more towards Brisbane than we were going towards Hobart. <laughs> um, and we raised 750,000 bucks in wow. our very first go. And then so Loyal sort of really kicked off. It, the charity side worked. Uh, we gave money to people who just couldn't raise money for themselves. So the, the beneficiaries of loyal, it's a discretionary uh, fund which I'm the chairman of, but it's generally to, something to do with children, uh, something to do with children's medical equipment, something to do with life-saving devices. Uh, we do give money to other causes as well. Um, you know, recently we, uh, uh, the guys at Beyond Blue reached out and they needed some money and we said, yeah, cool, we, we should, it's an important thing after COVID. So we have the power to also you know, go and jump into that. Um, we've helped kids who um, can't you know, get a grant uh, or, or are out of money and were gonna die in five days if they couldn't get to a life-saving medical operation uh, in, um, in Europe. Um, and so we, we bought their plane tickets and their parents' plane tickets to get them over there. So Loyal's that sort of, uh, it's kind of like the, uh, the underdog um, charity, fight for the underdog sort of set. So we generally steer ourselves away from the big, richer charities and put ourselves into the stuff that's, um, that's you know, got real return and, 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 and you know, as a life-saving device. I think the other thing with Loyal is that, you know, we're proud of is that it's 100 cents in the dollar. So there's no money for limousines or for, for marketing um, or for, for administration costs or staff costs. I don't get a salary out of Loyal for doing it, neither do all the staff here who run it. That was sort of, that had to be part of the foundation of it as well. So if you buy a piece of medical equipment, it goes straight to the hospital, 100 cents in the dollar of what you donate goes through to being a part there. So that's now 2009, we're sort of about 12 or 13 years old. I haven't looked, but we're sort of, uh, the last Hobart we did was 2016, but I think we're up around the 10, 11 million dollars of, of raising money and generating in it, still going strong today. Incredible, and I think I read as well on top of that, uh, was part of that, um, as part of those funds, some five, 600 pieces of life-saving medical equipment for, for children in need, which is credit to you and the team. I want to, so you've now done, as I understand it, five Sydney to Hobart's, the win in 2011 on Investec, the win in 2016 aboard Perpetual. Yeah, Rob, we've got, we've got the Hobart five times. We've done it, we've attempted it seven times. Um, like everything, uh, you have your ups and downs. We've had two breakdowns where we, um, where we sort of won the Sydney to Sydney. Um, we, uh, we got in a bass straight and cracked the boat and had to actually come back. So yeah, we've, um, so we've attempted seven. Uh, we've won two, uh, um, come second twice, uh, and also to a fourth. And then two did not finishes, which are, mate, like it's, it's like pulling teeth out. It's, it's you train for three months, everything's going well. And one of the, on one of the ones where we broke down, we're actually winning the race. Um, and, uh, and we looked good, everything looked good for us. And then we hit a sunfish and cracked the front of the hole and we're taking on water. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's almost impossible after training for three or four months for it, having everything right, having the crew right, um, the boat right, and then um, having to call no joy and ring um, race command and actually tell them that you're withdrawing from the race. And it's like, it takes about 
28 hours out of Bass Strait to slowly putt back up to Sydney. Uh, there's no alcohol in the boats because it's like a properly tuned Formula One machine. Um, no one tells any jokes, it's just misery um, personified in, in about 28 hours or so. Then what, is it, uh, what does it take to win one? You've won two now. What, how difficult is it? So 2011 was a really interesting one. We, we, um, and that's why I believe in mentors. Um, I remember we went 2000, uh, we won in 2011 off the back of coming second in 2010 and coming fourth in 2009. After 2009, I remember being you know, reached out to by a great sailing magnate, you know, well-known you know, champion of Australian business, um, car mm-hmm. manufacturer and, uh, and uh, distribution, Neville Crichton. Now he won in 2009 and he reached out to us and said, he said, look son, um, you need a lot of help. If you're ever gonna win this, and I've, I've read and you're saying you're gonna win one of these, um, you've got a long way to go to do it. But I've retired, so let me mentor and coach you. And, and that was amazing. First, I had to be ready to receive and listen um, to someone who was you know, sort of great and had you know, um, experienced victory. But the second part was is that you had to put into action the things that you were learning. So uh, we got our team right. The, thing that, the boat wasn't too bad. We needed to trick the boat up and get it going faster, but we also needed a better team. So it is not really about the boat. It's about the team in it, but also to a fast piece of equipment, also to you know, compliments and goes hand in hand. So we got our act together in 2010, really tough Hobart. Wild Oats, our nemesis, um, beat us in that one, but they beat us convincingly. But we, we, we moved up from fourth to second and it looked like you know uh, the remnants of our team was holding together and we were making progress. Then in uh, 2011, the, we, we made a couple of modifications to the boat. As we said, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, Wild Oats um, was, is the Ferrari of world sailing. Um, they had a strong owner, a wealthy owner who would just inject Um, whatever the boat needed to be successful and change and modify to get better every year. We were sort of really budget constrained. Um, um, And so I I sort of going into the race, I remember we spent about 50,000 bucks in mods. Um, This is all we could afford in a racing account. Uh, Wild Oats that year spent about $4 million to make their boat go faster. And they beat us at everything. We went to Hamilton Island about five months before the race for the Hamilton race week and we had 13 races. I remember being on the plane with the team saying, guys, we just have to win seven out of 13 up here. Uh, the night before the 13th race, I said, guys, we just have to win one race. Uh, we'd <laughs> lost 12 and so, and um, we went out there for the last uh, last race against the Wild Oats on a different wind angle and we got belted by them again. They, so 13 and 0, five months before Hobart. I remember going, okay, um, yeah, if, if all things follow their course right now and if everything goes the way it's going to go, we're going to come second to them again. They're just faster than us. They're better than us. So I thought, what, what can we do here to actually, you know, dial it up or, um, or switch up or something? And so I looked around for, I go, maybe tactically is where we can improve. Maybe, you know, sort of our tactician, our navigator is, is where we can get better. So I looked up a guy called Stan Honey. He invented the TomTom and, and racing system, real technology genius, but a yachting guy. Now he was on the West Coast of America and I, I rang up and I, I just basically, I got to him and um, his name was Stan Honey and he said, um, um, you know, in an American accent, he said, I, uh, I know a bit about you guys. I said, yeah, Stan, we haven't got much money in a racing account, but we've got a fast boat. Um, anything can happen in this. And I basically convinced him um, to come. I kept on calling him. He didn't want to come and he was, oh, you know, my wife and I, Sally, are going to have a break over that period. I, I arranged accommodation for him. I got a car for him. Uh, I rang Neville and said, mate, get whatever this guy needs, can we, you know, can you give him a car? Can you give him a place to stay? <laughs> Neville, my mentor, kindly agreed. Um, his race fee, he discounted it highly. Um, he liked the charity aspect, and I think that was the thing that he liked, the fact that we were buying kids' medical equipment in this completely separate account to it. And then uh, 
Mate, we were, we were only winning that race. We won that race in 2011 by three minutes and eight seconds, which is over 72 hours a lot. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, it was a long race and to the margin. So it came down in the last 200 metres. And if I really said, what was that cutting point difference? I said, it was this guy, Stan Honey. We, uh, Wild Oats turned right um, to go into Tasman Light. They were about they were 13 miles ahead of us, do you know I mean? Heading into the Tasmanian coast and then you enter Storm Bay and up the Derwin. And so we were well behind them. We set our boat up to turn right at the same time, um, at the same place that Wild Oats had and follow their pathway in because it was, the, it was the fastest and shortest pathway in. And about 30 seconds before we tacked, um, to, to if I remember we're 30 miles behind, Stan comes running up from the nav station and says, wait, hold, hold, right? And you know, I said, what's up? He said, he said, we're going to go another mile and three quarters and we're going to tack then. He said, they're going to hit a wind shadow and we're going to take them over on the outside. And you know, like we're coming second, and uh, you know, I go, mate, you know what? Nothing to lose. Hey, yeah, we're going to come second anyway. It was just a matter of how And so we did that extra, you know, mile and three quarters or two and a half k's. And he was there with almost his watch. He looked at the weather. He was up, and uh, he said, right. He said, set up to tack now. And he counted us down on the tack. And we literally, Wild Oats slowed down to doing about two or three knots. We took them over on the outside, about 18 knots. We were absolutely tearing, and it was just simply a wind shadow difference um, that was two miles um, not happening for Wild Oats where they, they, they failed or went into and where we got, you know, this incredible you know, wind out of the northeast that grabbed us and, and catapulted us into the lead. Then they got going again and then it was cat and mouse, you know, uh, first, second, first, second um, for about, I was going to say 13 hours and then um, going to the Derwin, we just had our nose in front and we just got over the line, like I said, three minutes and eight seconds, or about 200 metres in the race. And if, so it was those magical moments, that was, that was magical. But I say that, that um, the, the, um, the guy, Stan Honey, was probably the sole difference between winning and losing in that one. And sometimes it's like that in business too, you know, it's, a, it's that one percenter, you know, it's that tiny thing, the difference between what success looks like and what failure looks like. We'd set a goal to win. You know, I told everyone we're going to win. I told the sponsor we're going to win. I was probably trying to get more money out of it at the time. <laughs> Um, we told the crew we're going to win. I'm big on belief. I'm big on, on setting a goal and, and having everybody sort of go, great, let's tap onto that goal and, and latch onto it. You know, I mean, sort of an all, you know, 24 guys that were all aligned and they worked hard. Our guys worked hard, but there were so many factors that came into play, but our guys worked hard. Even when we were coming second, we were sailing like we were trying to get up in front. No one gave up, <clears throat> which meant that when Stan had his uh, magical moment, we were in strike and we were close enough to actually have a crack at them and get over the top of them. I mean, so it was, yeah, it was a magical campaign at 2011-1. And then in 2016, you broke the race record by some five hours, which is still holds today, as I understand it. Take us through that race and, and how you managed to beat a record by that margin. So we, it was an interesting one. So we, we, we did what everyone does. It was a bit like John Farnham. We retired after winning <laughs> in 2011. And we sat 2012 out as a racing team. <clears throat> and I really missed it, mate. I, I really, I missed the rigour of it. I missed the competition of it. I missed the camaraderie. I missed the guys, um, the whole lead up. And um, we, we still ran a loyal event and made money that year, but we didn't have a boat to actually staple to it. So I actually also started thinking it'll die off if we don't go again. <clears throat> so I got on the phone to um, our, our sailing manager, a guy called Black Joe, um, former naval captain, not much in boats that he didn't know much about. And uh, I contacted him, I said, uh, right after Wild Oats won, and they actually broke the then race record in 2012. And I was... So I wouldn't say I was filthy, but I watched it. I was, and uh, a fire lit up inside me. I was on the phone to him literally about two minutes after they crossed the line. 
I said, mate, find a boat. I know it was built in New Zealand uh, in 2012 or 2013. It was remarked to be the fastest boat in history, um, uh, but it, um, it did sink in the Irish Sea about a year ago. Uh, find it and buy it, and we're going to rebuild that, and we're going to come back in 2013. And one thing I say, you know, you need people to believe in your dreams as well. You know, you can have, you know, say that you're going to do this, and it was an enormous conquest to go and find a boat that, that had just sunk, uh, and 24 crew members had been pulled out by helicopter in the middle of the um, of the Atlantic. Um, and to go to them and say was the effect of, to a guy like Joe Akasic and say, Joe, find that boat, get it, we'll buy it. Um, it's obviously not going to cost us much because it's been at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and we'll get it to New Zealand, we'll rebuild it, and we'll take these guys on next year. You need someone to believe in those dreams. You need somebody to actually you know, hear them and go, OK. And they call to order, and he got straight on it. Within 24 hours, he found the boat. It was sitting over in Plymouth in London. Uh, it was still waiting on insurance claims and things like that. It's, it's, so it just been rotting away on the dock. And all that was left of the boat, the keel had sheared clean off. Um, the mast had sunk to the bottom of the ocean. All that's left was the carcass of the boat, the fiberglass part. And I said, well, that's the fastest part. Let's buy that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and it cost us like 300 grand um, to buy that. Then we, I pulled sponsors in. I got footage of the boat. I went excited. Uh, Jeff Lloyd at Perpetual, he was the then CEO um, at Perpetual. I said, mate, we're going to win the senior home. This thing's a race record breaker. Um, and uh, we created the vision and the excitement. Um, we got the sponsorship on board built a new carbon fiber mast, redecked the boat, re-mechanically the boat, and actually got it here just in time to race the 2013 race. And it was everything we thought it would be. The boat was big, it was nasty, um, <clears throat> it was stupidly fast, um, but it was susceptible to a breakdown, um, mm -hmm. hence why it had actually sunk a couple of years prior. And uh, we raced 13, we struck out the lead, we were beating Wild Oats by 20 uh, miles, which is enough to win five Cinder Hobarts. And um, I was going, wow, we're going to get a bullet in our first go. <laughs> and then same thing happened to us as, um, as it did happen to Wild Oats back in 2011. We hit a wind shadow and we were glassed out for close to 24 hours. And they steered around us and found some wind and bobbed past us. And uh, we ended up coming second in that race. Um, but the boat had proved itself like it was quick and the sponsors were happy. Getting a second in the first go was good. Um, Perpetual jumped on board. James Packer's Crown jumped on board as well. So we're, because we had the credibility of 2011, we were actually um, rightfully strong enough to call for credibility for the new campaign. Um, then uh, 2014, uh, we broke down. 2015, we broke down again when we were winning the race. We had Michael Clark on board, Kirtley Beal, mm. you know, the pride of Australia's sporting uh, elite were on board that boat. And they were, they were great in helping us raise money for charity. But after two breakdowns, Rob, I just said that this boat actually, you know, there's a reason it sunk to the bottom of the Irish Sea. It's bad luck. It's too big. It breaks down all the time. It's, it's stupidly fast, but it's brittle. Um, and so I retired. I said, that's it, we're over. And then uh, Dad died, uh, as I mentioned before, in late 2016. And the boat was just sitting in Newcastle, rotting away, literally trying to find a buyer of a boat that had broken down twice um, was impossible, you know. Um, and so no one actually wanted to buy the boat because of its pedigree and history of breaking down. And then I got on the phone again, another magical moment. I was at it was the night that Dad died. I got uh, into a meeting with a, my great mate, Peter Kligeris, who'd been with me all the way through, great sailor. You know, really, he's done about 20 Hobarts and really good. And um, Pete goes, you know what, mate? We've had enough bad luck. Why don't we go again? You know, we'll get the boat out, 
get out of the moulds, we'll get going and we'll have a crack. Now this is September and you're usually training by September. Our boat was sitting up in Newcastle. There was, like mate, it was covered in bird's poo. Um, <laughs> but again, got on the phone to Joe Akasic again, said, Joe, we're going. I set this thing up. I said, we've had enough bad luck. I think we're, we'll set it up, you know, for the win. Um, he goes, we've got no time. And we've only got a couple of months. I said, okay, don't set up a whole campaign. Let's just play our chances. Let's set up for reaching conditions and also to for running downwind. And we'll get enough sails together and, and that we won't get a full inventory. We'll just get enough to, to go in that race. And you know what? We'll try our luck. And as it turned out, yeah, that was the race. It, uh, we, we jumped in, Wild Oats jumped to a lead, but we stuck with them. We knew that we'd have a, another really good crack at them as we headed down toward Tasmania, but we just had to stay in touch with Wild Oats. It was an amazing race. Um, um, Oats is very fast downwind, and because we're a big boat, we're not quite as fast as they are downwind, but we're faster than when we start reaching and going across mm. the wind. Now, we saw the wind conditions in the future and saw that we'll get a crack at that um, probably in the second half of the race. But in order to actually jump them, we're going to have to stay in contact with them. So, you know, like there's a million stories uh, around the race record, but the, the largest ones, we carried a sail that was only rated to 23 knots till, and the winds hit 40 knots overnight. And all the crew were saying, begging me to take it down. It was this huge spinnaker the size of half a football field. And uh, it was tearing and it was ripping. They got the torches on and they said, they're going, boss, we've got to pull this down. This is, this is going to split. It's going to go into the ocean. You know, God knows what. It'll take us 10 hours to actually get it back out. You know, we'll go from 2nd to 11th. And I remember just thinking along those lines, I go, look, mate, we're here to win this. You know, I've said we're going to come and have a bullet. Our only chance of winning is that we actually run this out. So I'd rather come um, 11th with the shot at coming first than I would yeah. come 2nd and play a safe race. And it probably tells you a bit, a bit about my demeanour. Anyway, we, we just held this sail up. I think we got to morning and um, you know, Oates probably would have thought they'd be about 40 miles in front of us given the conditions and we were only six or seven miles behind them and then the wind turned and went our direction and then we reached around and we got going, we were going about four or five knots faster than them. So we ran them down, got in front of them um, and pushed the boat hard and then we just kept on going on and then broke the race record. It was a, made a great piece of history, yeah, that one. Um, and um, like I said, if, you, if you're in Hobart um, around that time, that's a, that, you've got to celebrate your victories. It feels like you're Robbie Williams in town. That, you know what I mean? Sort of when, uh, and that, you know, yeah, the victory night goes for about a week. <laughs> incredible, incredible achievements, incredible stories. I thought we'd just close out our discussion just with two or three more general questions. Uh, key pieces of advice that you've learnt along the way that you can share? Yeah, I think it's, uh, to me, it's not about the transaction, it's about the relationship. A transaction will just last for seconds. Um, a relationship will last for a whole career or a whole lifetime. So, I mean, you, when you're assessing that, you've got to assess what you're chasing. So, you know, for me personally, for the fabric of our firm, we've always chased the relationship. Um, we've chased things, you know, have a client for a long period of time. Um, um, take constructive criticism and get better, not bitter, you know, sort of around that set. Um, deliver something to the client that they're not expecting to get, you know, and so that then comes into our total framework, Robert. I'd say to anyone, you know, who's listing in services, just think about the power of different, you know, what different means. Um, following the same old um, service standards or the same old products um, in any market will mean that you're up gymming against a competitor who can pick you apart on price. If you have something that's special in your service or in your product, then price doesn't become the major factor, quality actually does. And so, you know, to that in the service industry, I'd probably say that's been part of our growth and that was always finding something that's more innovative um, so we don't have to get into pricing issues, we get into qualitative issues. 
overcoming adversity or, or challenge? How have you got through those? Look, it's hard. Um, like I said, there's times that, you know, I've literally, you know, the PA, uh, particularly in the early years, said, we're going to go broke this month for sure. You know, we can't pay wages on Friday. Um, we've, you've tapped, all your credit cards are tapped out and everything's there. Um, the resilience, determination, they've been written in every sport and business book for the history of staying in there. I think, though, that the better part to overcome, you know, some of those is, is like always, you know, thinking to plan, you know, um, not waiting to see what the odds will give you or what the, what the universe will throw you away is actually, you know, like having a viable plan, it actually doesn't mean you'll get into those risks. Um, for me, adversity has come in lots of different ways and, and all sorts of fields, you know, and, but I'd say that the way of conquering that one is you have to go to those self-belief systems. Um, um, you have to fear failure um, and you have to know that however bad things are uh, in whatever period of adversity you're in, they can get worse if you let them get worse or you can get that line driven and say, right, now I bounce up from that. Um, sometimes it's not about the setback, it's about the comeback and that's probably a good bell partner story for us. Finally, what's next? You, you've switched the, uh, the sales for the motor yachts. What, 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 is there another sport you want to conquer? Is there, where's so, your interest? So, Matt, it's an interesting point. I've uh, had a major sponsors come to us and said, how about three Hobart victories? Um, we've got two under our belt. Um, you'll see the sailing's changed in the world now. Like the maxis, the 100-foot maxis are still skimming, um, albeit, you know, sort of with, um, you know, sort of with, with a lighter framework but the true future of sailing is going to be foiling. Um, you've always seen the America's Cup boats are actually coming up out of the water and they're actually flying and they're going faster, so less wind and more speed. Um, I don't think it's going to be too long before there's a foiling maxi um, that's strong enough and engineered uh, right to actually take on the Cinder Hobart. Uh, and there's a bit of fires in me a little bit to um, be one of the people who come and have a crack at that and uh, go for one more race record. Anthony Bell, OIM, absolute pleasure sitting down with you and well done on building such a powerhouse business. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Rob. Thank you.